0: Hello, my name is Rosemary Milsom, and I'm the director of the Newcastle Writers Festival. In this session, "The Powers of B," which was recorded at the 2019 festival, former Australian Human Rights Commissioner Gillian Triggs talks to Jill Emberson about the escalating war between truth and politics.
1: Gillian Triggs probably needs very little introduction to you, but I'll just go back to you know the beginning of her story that we've become familiar with. Unless you were deep into international law, you might have been in one of the forums where Gillian was speaking in her earlier days as a lawyer, but she came to our attention when she became the president of the Australian Human Rights Commission, 2012. She left a top job as an academic lawyer at Sydney Uni to take on the job at the Australian Human Rights Commission. It seemed, from what I've read, Gillian, that it was a natural evolution of what you'd been doing as an educator, advocating for Australian domestic law to reflect international human rights obligations. Clearly, it was not all that straightforward. And thanks to the politics and the political media of the time, we all became front row participants of you in that role. In fact, sometimes I felt we were going to work with you, especially at Senate Estimates Committee. I mean, who felt that we were there, viscerally experiencing what looked like torture? of you in that role. Now, the theme of today's session is the powers that be. In the escalating war between truth and politics, how do we maintain human rights? The way I thought we would best approach that this morning so that we all go home armed with some insights on how we're going to do that, would be to address some of the themes that Gillian picks up in her book, in her experience as the President of the Australian Human Rights Commission and then to ask for her advice, her insights, on how we might move forward as individuals in this community. I'll make sure there's time for questions for you from the floor. There'll be a microphone, so we'll make sure that happens. So, to start the conversation with you, please, Gillian, as head of the Commission, in your time, the issues that that came to the top of your agenda were things like asylum seekers, refugees, juvenile Indigenous people in detention, Section 18C of the Racial Discrimination Act, marriage equality? Could you describe for me how you chose those issues or did those issues choose you?
2: Well, thank you, Liz and. and um, Jill. Sorry, Jill. Absolutely. I know, it's okay. Jill, there I thought we off off just straighten it out start. from the very beginning. <laughs> Jill, would you, Liz? Um, Yes, no, it's fantastic to be here on an absolutely gorgeous day here in in, uh, Newcastle, and thank you all for being here. It's such a heartwarming thing for me to to know that you're still following these issues and and asking some of the questions here at the Writers' Festival. Um, Yes, of course the issue's found me. Um, And as you've rather suggested in your introduction, um, I really, for 45 years, was much more an international commercial lawyer working on, um, you know, I've written 10 books that I don't think anybody read. They're all all uh, on library shelves gathering dust with riveting titles like um, Sovereign Immunity from the Jurisdiction and Territorial Claims in the South China Sea or whatever. <laughs> anybody <laughs> um, read it? <laughs> so um, this was really an extraordinary opportunity for me on finishing that position as president uh, to write a, a book about... Um, not only what the legal issues were, because they clearly weren't cutting through in academic work or in the legal opinions with the law firm I was with, Uh, and writing a book like this where you begin with the personal pronoun I, it's the first time you're able to reach out to a wider audience. But to answer your question, the issues that I wrote about and that I dealt with in my five years were issues that found me. Um, They weren't issues that I would necessarily have picked up myself, although, of course, as every international lawyer does, you're aware of the regressive position of women in Australia, of the world's highest rate of incarceration of Indigenous peoples, all of these things. You're aware of them. But I was on my 53rd floor of a law firm or at the Sydney Law School um, or in Britain in a research institute, and you know this stuff intellectually, but you don't know it really And I think that's when it became powerful for me that all the things that I've been talking about and learning about over all of those 45 years of my career, that you're now actually on Christmas Island talking to a woman with a baby in her arms, wanting citizenship or wanting at least an assessment of her claim to refugee status. Um, Or I'm talking to a woman who's had seven years in detention in Villawood. Um, without charge or without trial or going to indigenous aged care homes three hours drive out of Catherine, when you meet those people as president of the Human Rights Commission with extraordinarily high um, and wide powers, you realize that you can't turn your back on them. You can't say, well, your story that's interesting, that's fine, I'll add you to my social research and data and I'll report to Parliament. You, you, you can do that, of course, but you can't say, and I'll forget you now, you're just a statistic or a number. You, you become wedded to that person, and I remember them well, and I will never forget them. And I felt that given the powers that I'd been given, I had to use them to, um, uh, to, to, to try to temper what I believe were profoundly um, invalid uh, and, and inhumane policies of the Australian government.
1: Can you remind us of how wide the powers are that you had and that any president of the Australian Human Rights Commission actually has?
2: Yes, well, these were powers that um, were given to the president in 1986, whoever that president is, and the commission's been in existence now for more than 30 years. And uh, one thing that I was a bit astounded by when I first took the job on is that the president and only the president is responsible for everything that happens in the commission. So although there are seven commissioners, the wonderful Mick Gooder, uh, the Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander Commissioner, Liz Broderick, the uh, Sex Discrimination Commissioner, and so on, um, they do not hold any responsibility for the primary work of the commission. Only the president does. So that when we got 20,000 inquiries and complaints a year from the Australian public in my time, in fact it was 22,000, every decision in relation to them where a decision had to be made was made by me. And that was absolutely daunting, now, obviously, I had to delegate that power to um, uh, officials within the within the commission, but that that was that was the first striking uh, realization of just how significant these these uh, powers were. but there were many powers, the powers to request a court to be able to intervene in matters that were going to the federal court or the high court, and the court always gave us that permission, so we could intervene and I think you 'll understand that in the Australian adversarial system, you have uh, advocates uh, for the prosecution or the defense or the, the plaintiff or the defendant, a strong position over here and a strong position over there, and the judge and the court or a jury has got to sort of sit in the middle and try to sort of work out where the truth is. And we were able to come in at the middle as a sort of amicus or friend of the court and say, "This is; these are the human rights issues at risk here whether it was, for example, the second uh, round of hormone treatment for, um, for those of, of um, m- moving from one uh, gender to another, um, we could intervene in these cases to protect the rights of children. Um, that was another important power, but probably the one that got me into the most trouble uh, was the power to hold an inquiry. And that was a semi-judicial power in the sense that I could... Um, uh, ask witnesses to come, and they had to give evidence under oath or affirmation, depending on their point of view. And on one occasion, with regard to the inquiry to children, I asked the then Minister for Immigration, Mr Scott Morrison, our Prime Minister, to come to the inquiry. Um, And had he refused, I had the powers to require him to come. And I was shaking in my boots because I thought if he says no, do I use that power and make him come and answer the questions or, or do I simply back away? Mercifully, and to his credit, he came uh, and t- tried, of course, to bully me from the other side of the, of the uh, inquiry, but, uh, but he was required to answer the questions and he had to answer the questions on oath. And that was, that was a power that I decided to use.
1: It's so great to be reminded of that, isn't it? <laughs> Whoa. Did you I, – I, I, many so many questions arise, but c- you mentioned there uh, um, that Scott Morrison in that position tried to bully you. Could you ex- – did I get that right and could you expand on that? Well,
2: I, 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 I mentioned the word bully, but it's a strong word. It's not one that one really wants to use, certainly not about a senior politician, um, but it's become – really crucial for us to understand that, to go back to that old adage, sticks and stones may break my bones, it's totally wrong to say words will never hurt me. The, the reality we're learning from the sociologists, psychologists, the school teachers, the medical profession, words are far more dangerous than the sticks and stones. And I'm learning that, that when people abuse their power, and bully others from that position of power. That is very, very damaging. And whether it's damaging in our school environments where young people are committing suicide at astonishing rates, particularly among Indigenous families, but, but more than, you know, beyond that into, into men of middle age and, and women in some cases, but not so many, um, I think we have to start to understand that when you bully people, that, that, is, a, that is a very damaging, hurtful experience socially. and and something that we need to be much more aware of. And of course that can carry through to issues that we're now thinking about in the aftermath of of the Christchurch killings. Horrible, horrible tragedy for those people. But when we have senior politicians who use language that in a sense licenses others to speak um, offensively and, and through racial vilification and hatred, that licences too many others to think they can get away with it. Now, the bullying is something that, sadly, I really, and many, many others, I'm hardly the only person, but you see it all the time in, in Parliament where people assume um, a level of, of confidence and power because they've been elected into office, and they then think that they are above the law and that they can treat statutory officers, members of the public um, with contempt. And I saw that over and over again and, um, and in particular ways that as some of you will know I illustrated last night.
1: <laughs> well, that does take us to the experience that we did all, I think, viscerally experience with you and that is the Senate estimates. Uh, that you were obliged, that's right, as President of the Commission to report on a regular basis and um, we can't help, I can't help but recall uh, Senator Brandis's very aggressive condemnation of you, the Prime Minister at the time challenging your status, status in that position and I'm surprised as I read the book that you're no, you don't dwell on that a lot. You're, you're not particularly enraged. You don't express that overly. But it did happen, and you did cope because you're here today. How traumatic was it?
2: Well, it was traumatic, and, it, and I was very angry, really, much more angry than, than anything else. Um, but I think the penny dropped for me that this was not about me. This was really an ideological attack on on human rights in Australia, and on the institutions of democracy. Uh, They are underpinning our democracy and the rule of law. And once I realized that, I I realized that that it was never about me. But also, in writing the book, I I, I know that um, my wonderful publisher, Louise Adler, uh, would say to me, you know, the legal stuff's fine, Gillian, but how did you feel? You know, tell us the stories. What did the, what did the attorney offer you as a job to get you out of the place? You know, why was the prime minister hugging you one moment and four weeks later condemning you? Um, tell those stories. And I, I, uh, I, I love Louise Adler. She's absolutely wonderful. Uh, but, and I did accept some of that advice in talking at a more personal level about, about things. But I, I knew instinctively that if I used the book, to complain about the treatment of me, to turn it on to something, me as the victim, that would, I would lose my case. Um, what I, I've really got a much more important story to tell, and that is how and why we've moved from those remarkable days of Dr H. V. Evatt, born in Maitland, not too far from here, who was there in 1945 drafting the Charter of the United Nations, called back by Eleanor Roosevelt through the department uh, to help negotiate the human rights um, declaration and President of the General Assembly when it passed without a negative vote in 48. From that time on, we have been a major player in the international environment in building that human rights um, context. A major player? A major player. It was quite extraordinary. We were one of eight countries playing a role with Eleanor Roosevelt in drafting those documents. Now, that's sort of past history, people have forgotten it. But we've had the, the 50s, 60s, 70s, all the way up to the 90s, Australia, across the political spectrum both parties, the major parties, fully behind developing this law, negotiating, signing, and ratifying those treaties. Uh, And yet by, if you can put a a line in the sand, from 2001, the children overboard lie, as Senate estimates subsequently demonstrated, uh, the Tampa confected crisis, and the same year, the terrorist attacks on on uh, the Pentagon and and, uh, and and the Twin Towers. From that time, we've regressed. Um, but those are the, it's it's the question of how we're the why are we the only democracy and common law country in the world without a charter of rights? Why can we detain indefinitely without charge or trial um, people in immigration detention and increasingly people whose visas have now been cancelled by the Minister for Home Affairs? Um, on his discretion on character grounds without the supervision of a, of a judge. How is this happening in our democracy um, when it can't happen in any, in any other because you have a charter uh, that the courts can apply? So I guess to, to, uh, to, to go back to your question, I felt that if I used the book to, to project myself as a victim of, and talked about the gossip and the stories, I would lose my opportunity to talk about the seriousness of the regression of protection of human rights um, over the last 20 years.
1: Well, okay, that's fantastic. Whoa. <laughs> well, it's it's a it's a noble. It is clearly the more noble path, and I imagine that resisting Louise Adler wouldn't have been easy because she's such a persuasive and impressive Australian publisher, and you know the personal story is so. Um, important in our current cultural world. It is, it is fundamentally important, but you've decided in this book that is not the priority. The priority, as you continue through the book, is to mount a case for a bill of rights, a charter of rights. I thought we had one.
2: Well, um, th- that you make my point uh, beautifully, Jill, because a few years ago um, a-, a survey was conducted of Australians... And the question was asked, do we have a constitution? 48% of Australians said no. The next question was, do we have a Bill of Rights? And 62% of Australians said yes. Aren't we and funny? A, <laughs> and around that time, with all apologies to Queenslanders, I saw, a, I saw a newspaper item and a man had tragically killed his partner, a woman as it is all too often, 70 a year, uh, women killed by their partners or former partners. And as the police arrived and and put the cufflinks around his wrist, he said to the police officer, I want to take the Fifth Amendment.
1: Oh, my God, that is so shocking. An Australian says, I want to take the Fifth Amendment. Now, the
2: tragedy is that we know more about our civil rights and our fundamental liberties from American television programs than we do from our own. And I think, in a way, that is how the government gets away with these egregious laws um, that I can talk about in ways that will, you know, you will glaze over, but... We're losing the independence of the judiciary with mandatory sentencing processes where we've got uh, um, executive discretion now for ministers that is neither compellable by the courts nor for practical purposes reviewable by the courts. That is now massively expanding government control. But because the language I've just used people in the main don't get, it's allowed the government to get away with it. Um, One thing that always absolutely amazed me at the the Commission, it's still true, of course, is those last sitting weeks before Christmas is when some of the most draconian counter-terrorist laws and laws prohibiting protest against environmental issues, you watch every Christmas there's another raft of laws going through, de-encryption laws, um, data, data protection laws. They're all going through. Not that we don't need some of these laws, but that they are passing without the safeguards and without judicial supervision. And that is really what concerns me. But the problem is that that, those aspects of laws are a bit obscure and a bit abstract. Whereas if I talk about the woman I met, a New Zealander, held in Villawood for seven years, and I sat in the sun on the concrete with her and talked to her, uh, she'd had her visa uh, to stay in Australia cancelled on character grounds by the minister couldn't be challenged in court, the New Zealanders wouldn't take her back, and she was stuck in that, effectively, a prison for all of those years. And I'm sitting there talking to a woman who's as like me as anybody else. Um, I didn't deal in drugs. She did. Um, She's paid a a sentence. But what's happening is that after they've paid their sentence uh, and satisfied their sentence, they're being picked up and then held indefinitely. Um, Now, these aren't always people we would choose as our next door neighbors or our best friends, but they are people who are entitled to the benefit of the law wherever that law takes us. Those stories and the stories of, of the children on, on, uh, on Christmas Island or um, you know, an indigenous woman uh, in, in a community uh, in, in the center of Australia, these are the stories that are likely to touch and move hearts and minds rather than the reports So if I could just give you one other example. Um, Some years ago I did a report on a young man with cognitive disability um, who had been moved from pillar to post, an Indigenous young man in the Northern Territory, um, had a row with his uncle in tragic circumstances and killed his uncle with a kitchen knife and ended up in a juvenile detention centre in the Northern Territory. He was held in a steel restraint on 16 documented times with a spit hood, was allowed out of his solitary confinement only for one or two hours a day, and then was shackled, sprayed with with, uh, with, uh, tear gas, and subject to all sorts of verbal and other abuse. I reported to Parliament, and the Attorney General at that time tabled the report in Parliament with the words, I table this report. It sank like a stone and nobody read it. Two years later, many of us saw the the Four Corners program on the Dondale Detention Centre and the CCTV footage of exactly the same treatment to another young man, Dylan Voller. Um, At 6 o'clock the following morning, the Prime Minister is on the phone to me saying, should we have a Royal Commission? Well, of course I said yes, and I'm sure he consulted many other people. But the point I'm making is you almost have to have that iconic image, the photograph and the footage... For the Australian public to realise what is going on, because the reporting by somebody like me to Parliament has almost no impact whatsoever.
1: Unless we have a Parliament that is going to take it seriously.
2: Exactly. And we don't. That's the missing link. Yes. That, that, is, that is the. And that brings us back to, to, to Senate estimates. That they, many of the senators there not only refuse to, to read our statute, refuse to read the laws in Australia that they, the Senate and the, and the Parliament, have passed. They don't even read them or understand them. And then when the reports, whether it's by me or somebody reporting on the science of climate change or on the, uh, the problems of, um, of, um, of elder abuse or uh, indigenous children 11 times more likely to be in out-of-home care than, um, than non-indigenous children, these reports, sexual harassment being another of them, these reports have been going on for a decade or more. The facts are clear, but but what moves ultimately is the is the unfortunately the catastrophic event, the iconic picture and the and the role of the media in forcing politicians to take notice of these issues.
1: which does then inevitably lead us to the particular challenge in the decline of the media, the decline of the capacity of the media to fund the kind of investigations that are going to expose things like the you know Dondale Detention centre that becomes another part of the equation as we as a community try to make sure that the human rights that we have are taken seriously. We are, in, are we in a very big conundrum here or is conundrum too polite a word?
2: Well, I, I think we're in a dark place and, and I think um, we've probably had the poorest political leadership over the last decade or so that we've had for a very long time. And we haven't had that visionary, principled leadership that I think we did have in the past. Um, one might disagree with political leaders in the past, but they put reasoned arguments to the public and the public made an, made up their minds. Whereas now, um, reports, um, expert evidence on, on any number of issues are now used by politicians, if at all, to promote an ideological approach to the issue and we're not getting the informed um, debate and and informed outcomes. Um, So I think we've been in a very dark place. It's a strange um, paradox really because um, the World Economic Forum for example places Australia as number one in the world for educating people and most particularly educating women and girls. And yet for gender equality, we've slipped from 15th uh, in 2006 to 46 a couple of years ago. Um, It's it's an extraordinary um, phenomenon that we are uh, among the best educated people in the world, and we deeply believe in education, and yet it hasn't always delivered the outcomes. Um, And we seem to tolerate government, but that's becoming increasingly ideological and ignoring the evidence and the facts that was so important to me, and I'm sure to most of you in this audience, in our education, we always saw evidence and facts as being crucial to inform policy. Our media has played a very important role as investigative journalists in exposing um, or telling the story, frankly, without necessarily having an ideological perspective. But now, because of competition, of course, we're finding that the journalists can't get three months to do a bit of work on the influence of lobbyists in Canberra. Um, how is it that our politicians, after finishing their, their stints in politics, find themselves on the boards of the very companies that were the lobbyists that were persuading them to the legislation? Uh, in order to uh, – this is complex. You've got to get the facts right. You can't make an assertion and get it wrong. If you do, you'll be pilloried. But to get the facts right, we need investigative journalists. Um, but unfortunately, the, the economics of, of, um, of the major publishing companies have declined, and we've also, of course, had a major publisher in Australia who isn't concerned with the facts at all.
1: <laughs> so. That wouldn't be the one that did 41 cartoons of you whilst that's you not. were the President of the Commission.
2: <laughs> oh, that's right. I have a wonderful collection of cartoons. Um. <laughs> And I'm a, I love cartoons. In fact, sometimes you don't need to read the paper. You just go straight to Tanberg or straight to and – you, and you get it. You get a, a concise, clever encapsulation of the issue of the day, and it's a brilliant skill, and I love it. Um, and some got what I was saying and, and, and were wonderful. Uh, others were quite flattering. I have some of me with thin ankles and a tiny waist, which I, <laughs> which I keep – Pinned to the fridge to remind me <laughs> myself of what I what I could be. Um, but others were really vicious, uh, and they had me as um, uh, you know a neo-fascist in in uh, the black shirt and boots, um, telling you all what you could say uh, over over. Of course, the 18C issue. Uh, how very curious that now the government is. Uh, hypocritically arguing that we now need new laws on racial vilification when they did everything they could to to, um, repeal and and reform that that line in the sand uh, between freedom of speech on the one hand and racial hatred on the other.
1: The importance of political leadership. I'd like to ask you this, Gillian. I recall when Julia Gillard was Prime Minister and we, you know, the refugee and asylum seeker issue was just starting to really take hold, I kind of thought surely if she invested some big money in a big public education campaign that she could have brought, as a starter, the people in this room along for the ride. But Labor became wedged, it seems, by the coalition and therefore, is it always going to be thus? Or, I mean, will we need to have a prime minister, a parliament who's prepared to stand up, take the community with them, invest in educating the community so we can get over this sort of un- – this very poor norm that has now become the ideological basis of what's okay and what's not okay?
2: Yes, I, I, I really have come to the view – that with strong principled leadership, we can right the ship. We can bring Australia back to the values that we built, that this country was built on. Um, but we've lacked that principled leadership. We find our prime ministers swaying to, to either assuage the right wing or assuage the left wing. And I think it's it's almost trite to say that Australians long for a sort of centrist, evidence-based. Calm, rational government on issues as, as divisive as um, asylum seekers and refugees. I think if if um, the Labour leaders, Julia, who I you know I have admired and I think was not treated with respect, but nonetheless, I think Labour as well as Liberal leaders and National Party leaders failed to seize the moment for principle. If if Mr. Shorten or um, Julie Gillard or, um, or M- Malcolm Turnbull had said to the Australian public, we've been drifting on the wrong path. Let us, let us go back to the values that underpin our democracy, that underpin the traditional generosity of Australia. We had a Department of Immigration that was predominantly welcoming in a relatively orderly manner, but nonetheless welcoming. We defended borders but we welcomed Australians and we saw the value of diversity and we built the country on the basis of it. If the prime, any one of those prime ministers had stood up and said, we've taken the wrong path, let us come back, it mightn't have been popular for a while and you'd have had some screaming headlines, but we need the strength to come back to those policies. And I'm of the view, uh, as you seem to be too, that the public would have come behind it. They would have come behind But when you license people to equate terrorism with the faith of Islam, with asylum seekers smashing up on boats at Christmas Island, when you equate those and you conflate these issues, you license too many people to say, um, and using the language of Mr. Abbott, stop the boats, save the drownings at sea. Therefore, we must keep children in detention indefinitely on Nauru and Manus Island. In my time, of course, hundreds of them on on Christmas Island. Um, That's the tragedy, that that Mr Abbott was brilliant at the slogans. And I don't think the other side of politics are particularly good at it. And uh, certainly, nor am I. Um, You need the slogans, um, unfortunately, because it brings people with you. But I'm absolutely convinced that with principled leadership, We could have overcome the simplicity of those slogans to say we can defend our borders, we can work with Indonesia and Malaysia and Vietnam and and so on, we can work with those countries regionally and we can assess asylum seekers reasonably speedily. If they're not refugees, they go home. But if they meet the legal test, and about 85% do, then we treat them with humanity, we share the burden in the region, We accept responsibility, and we welcome them, and um, we we relish the diversity uh, that they bring, Uh, and of course, as we all know now, the entrepreneurial spirit and so on. I think we could have done it, but we lost that opportunity, and Labor unfortunately uh, was responsible for bringing in some of the most draconian laws that we've ever seen in Australian uh, legal history.
1: What do you think, Newcastle? Would we have got behind such a leader? I hope you're all thinking of some questions. We're going to get the microphone to come to the middle of the floor. Um, Don't be shy. Uh, And when you take a mic, introduce yourself. Uh, But I think it's a great opportunity. Gillian is very generous with her uh, time and her language and her experience. So if if you've got a question, in a moment... We'll be, getting, we'll be heading to there. I do have one more question, though. Uh, I've got several, but I won't ask them all because I do want to make sure everybody has an opportunity this morning. We are now, although it hasn't been announced, we are clearly uh, heading for a federal election somewhere like the 11th, the 18th or the 25th of May. Um, there may be a change. There might not be a change. Certainly one of the background issues to the, the kind of uh, edge that we've come toward or headed towards, the precipice, is the events of Christchurch. Um, Australia, in my opinion, now an exporter of terrorism. That's blunt language, but we are. We did. We hold a responsibility. Do you think from what you've experienced as the president and in somebody in such a deeply entrenched position or on, of knowledge around this area, Gillian, do you think, in your observation, that Christchurch is a sufficient enough event to help bring us back from the precipice in the broader you know, battle that we are in now? Well, I
2: think it's caused us to stop and to think and to reflect. This is a horrific act um and we have to ask ourselves you know what are the causes of this what environment have we allowed to be created which might just tip somebody into taking action of this kind um i think it's a global thing it's certainly not just australia by any stretch of the imagination but we're part of a global world um i think it's caused us just to stop and be a little quiet. I was horrified at the way in which the government immediately started talking about caps on immigration, as though they were in somehow, some way linked. I think that that was a, a deeply shocking thing, whereas we've all seen that remarkable woman, um, uh, Prime Minister Adhern, seem to move away from ideology uh, to immediate empathy and compassion for, for those families. And she didn't. She stayed out of the politics. She moved straight to compassion for those people. And I think that that's where we as Australians should be for the moment. Um, we, will think, we will have to think deeply about some of the things that I very briefly raised. We must not allow our politicians to use language which dog whistles to some of the worst instincts of the community. We need more leaders to stand up. For, for the compassion and for, for the principles of, of our democracy. Um, so, uh, if I can tell just a little story that, that's rather the Absolutely. same. Absolutely. Um, I was telling you a little bit about the Dondale thing and I mentioned the Four Corners program. I was actually taking my life in my hands for the, uh, uh, after having done so on a number of occasions, for Q <laughs> and A. And I was in the green room for, for Q and A and the noise level was up here. We were all a bit nervous, and we knew that we would be um, not attacking each other, but we but w- we were going to be opposing each other. Remind us who
1: else was on the panel that night. To be quite honest,
2: I've forgotten, but I know. <laughs> but I know that it was being chaired by Virginia Trioli. And uh, but but the atmosphere was one of, of tension. That we we were um, oh I know of course I know um, uh, um, Senator Erica Bat- Betts was on with me. <laughs> And as you can imagine, I would put a fair bit of time into doing some homework because I wanted to be sure, as you all know, if I get it wrong, I am pilloried. Other people can get it wrong, and I think it's a gendered issue to a degree as well. If I get it wrong, I'm in real trouble. So I'd done my homework, and I was all tensed up and ready to go, and I think everybody else was. The noise level was up there, but in the green room, green room in the ABC, around the rim of the green room, are all these TV screens. And as we were talking too loudly and too excitedly, we started to see the picture of Dylan Voller in that steel restraint with the spit hood. And we saw the picture of the guards and the vicious language of the superintendent of the detention center saying, I won't repeat the language, but use everything you've got, spray them, uh, they strip the boys. In the, in, and this was all on CCTV footage. And we were watching it. And the noise level, we just stopped talking. We just completely stopped talking and watched this little bit in the remaining two or three minutes before we we walked behind Virginia Trioli into the recording studio for Q&A. And it had an impact. I haven't spoken to Virginia about this since, but she and all of us just calmed everything down and she ran, I think, one of the nicest Q&As that I've ever been involved in um, because the conversation was civil, courteous. We deferred to each other. We listened to each other. The audience was calm. And I thought, there is an advantage to seeing the, the catastrophic incident, to bringing us back to some sensible, normative, courteous and, and fact-based discussion. So to come back to your question, it, it's so horrible what happened in Christchurch. Almost, there's almost no language to describe it. But I think we need reflection and calm and sympathy. But then we need to explore how we've allowed globally, as well as in Australia, language and the the splintering of society uh, that has allowed a single person to commit an an act of such atrocity. Um, and, And so I think reflection and calm for the moment.
1: Thank you, Gillian. Now, does anyone? Yes, absolutely. Thank you. You happy to take some questions from the floor? Okay, just head right up to that mic.
3: If I may, thank you, Gillian. Well done, and thank you from us all. Let me t- ask a question that flows directly from your last comments. Terrorism is a word with an enormous capital T, uh, and we see the term terrorism used not only by our own prime ministers but by Mr Putin and um, Chairman Xi and China, is there anything in terrorism, any aspect of terrorism which cannot be captured by the criminal law? Would it in fact assist our human rights discussion enormously and the prosecution and prevention of such cases if we simply referred to to terrorists as criminals and used a C word instead of a T word. Thank you.
2: Well, thank you. Um, My view is that um, politicians globally and in this country have used the T word deliberately to create fear. But terrorism exists. It's a phenomenon. And the extraordinary thing is that in 2001, Australia had no terrorism legislation. Now, perhaps you're a lawyer, but you know, certainly I know and many in the audience will know, criminal law already covers all of those acts anyway. I mean, it's murder, it's assault, whatever it is. It's, all, it's easily covered by the criminal law. But the, the dimension and the horror of terrorism has had calls for perhaps different and, and uh, different laws, and it and calls for, for for greater powers of surveillance and so on by our by our um, federal police and, and security agencies. So since 2001, Australia has enacted what's been called hyper legislation. We have enacted more laws since 2001 on terrorism than than the United Kingdom, Canada, the, the New Zealand. We've just gone mad, and we, we're constantly doing it to the point where now we've got. Uh, preventive detention orders and control orders that apply to 14-year-olds. Um, now, they're probably never going to be used and there'll be every lawyer in the country will be onto to it if any child is ever picked up in those circumstances, but I, I'm not actually all that worried about it, but they're disproportionate laws. What really concerns me is that politicians use fear, particularly through terrorism, to justify laws which undermine the rule of law and undermine our liberties. Now, it's not to say we don't have terrorist laws, but we, they must be administered proportionately and they must be administered uh, with the supervision of the judiciary or tribunals. But let's make the point of contrast, as I did a, a little while ago. 70 women were killed last year and 25 children in domestic violence Now, if, uh, by their partners or former partners. Now, that, that's just the tip of the iceberg of the, of, the, of the general problem and some men are killed as well in those circumstances and in others. Why are we not putting the resources proportionately into dealing with those social problems and perhaps manage to identify (laughs) and perhaps manage to identify that one person who is going to go over? Into absolute madness and killed too many other people. Um, I was uh, saw in the budget uh, two days ago that that we've given five million dollars to Indigenous youth suicide, and two hundred million dollars to a new statue for Captain Cook. Now, and guess which which electorate that is in? It's in Cook, and who stands? Who's the who's the representative of Cook? The Prime Minister. The world has gone mad, absolutely mad, when we, we have disproportionality of that kind. So thank you for your question.
1: Thank you so much, Julian. Please move forward. Just identify yourself and fire away because we only have about nine minutes together.
0: Sure. Thank you so much. Um, my name is Anissa, and my question follows on um, from what you were just saying about the issue of hyper-legislation, so I'm a law student, and that's something that I'm incredibly worried about and the erosion of civil liberties. And my question is, how can we move political discourse away from infantilizing the Australian public with very simplistic rhetoric and making the discussion a lot more complex and addressing the intricacies that come with terrorism and also that come with race and the issue of immigration?
2: Well, thank you and good luck with your studies. You're here at Newcastle. No, I'm from Queensland. From Queensland? Oh, well. Well, Queenslanders need a bit of education in this area. (laughs) I didn't say that. Erase that. Erase that totally from the record. Um, But good luck with your studies. I have got a very straightforward answer. We need a Charter of Rights in Australia. Queensland has just enacted one as you will know. That's a huge step forward. It joins Victoria and the ACT. I think we need one at the federal level, but it's not the only answer. I think take back citizenship, vote, not along ideological lines and political lines, but you young people, use your vote for those people that you think have the characteristics and qualities of leadership in our political environment. And I think then Australian citizens can take back the agenda and take back the protection of those values. Thank you.
4: Uh, Good morning, Professor Trigg. My name's Carolyn Diviak. Um, Professor Trigg, why during your time as Australian Human Rights President did you refuse to defend Julian Assange, falsely claiming that he had been charged by Swedish courts and could defend himself there, and additionally that his defence was outside your jurisdiction? He's an Australian citizen. He's committed no crime. As as a courageous journalist and whistleblower, he and WikiLeaks exposed the war crimes and conspiracies of the US and world imperialism and the human rights abuses across the globe. He was forced to seek political asylum in the Ecuadorian embassy to avoid certain extradition to the US on manufactured espionage and conspiracy charges, carrying maximum sentences of life, Imprisonment I think
1: we penalty. have the question. I don't think we have time for the full background, if you don't mind.
2: Okay.
1: Um, is that okay? You Sorry to look, cut you look, off. You, time is
2: you know, it, it's a fair question. Um, my view was, is, uh, that he was being charged with an offence in Sweden um, and we have the obligation to respond to those charges. Um, I think he he um, he's to be admired for many, many reasons, and, and you've listed them. Um, but he never made any uh, uh, he never reached out to the Australian Human Rights Commission and I had twenty two thousand other matters to be dealing with. Um, so I had to of course to take the priorities for me. Also I knew that Julian was getting excellent legal support um, and certainly privately uh, we have tried to ensure that he gets the support of the Australian government as he's entitled to as an Australian citizen. but he has a responsibility to face up to the charges that were were being laid. Uh, before, before, before these Swedish authorities. There were no charges, there were allegations. Mm. He was never charged with anything. And they've now been withdrawn, but he was yes. asked to justify those well, charges. He, he
4: realised mm. that he would be extradited to the
2: US. Mm. Mm. Well, he feared that. And Chelsea that, that's Manning, true. Manning
4: has been, has been I, look, incarcerated I'm, once again. Yes. You know, uh, uh, Because she refused to testify against Assange in this grand jury mm. that has been uh, developed mm. in order
2: to Get him. Well, I, 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 I sympathise with your questions, um, and I wish that there was something I could do personally about the situation, but I really can't, and I couldn't when I was President. But thank you for the question, and I know there are many, many lawyers working to help him if they possibly can. Thank
1: you, thank you Gillian. Okay, come forward. Thank you.
0: Good morning. My name is Lara. Um, I'm a Year 12 student and I'm doing legal studies, and I was wondering how we as a society can
2: best promote and enforce human rights, how we can help our government um, see that that's a
3: priority of ours.
2: Well, thank you, and I think really, thank you for the question. I really want to hear from young people like you at school in your final year, um, because I really think the future, I mean, it's an obvious statement to make, the future lies with you, but I'd like to see you better educated and better informed about our constitutional origins, what the purpose of these rules of separation of judicial power, what they all mean, why they're so important, and I'd love to see uh, your teachers picking up some of these issues in the curriculum, but at your stage you'll be going on to further studies I imagine. I think uh, try to inform yourself about how this system works and then speak up. Use your education that we clearly have in Australia, particularly for women and young girls. Use it. Uh, to speak up, get your facts right, get get the law right, uh, and then speak up. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Hi, um, Gillian, my name's Katie. I'm a primary school teacher here in Newcastle, so was very appropriate the last speaker. Um, I was interested for you to maybe elaborate a little bit more on the ideological shift that you were noting since 2001, and I guess you promoted the idea of wanting more of a centrist government, but I'd like to maybe posit the idea that the centre now has moved quite sharply to the right. So I think that ideas that many of us would seem as quite straightforward, like looking after people who are unemployed or welcoming in refugees, are now seen as ideological positions rather than what I would say is quite basic human rights positions. And I think that's certainly affected the education system where our curriculum and our funding of education has become something of a political pawn. And we um, actually are seeing governments kind of use the education system as a weapon in, in their fights. I was really personally quite inspired by the climate change student protests that happened late last year and this year, and I think that's one of the ways. But, yeah, I was just wondering if you could speak a little bit more about that because I found it interesting.
2: Well, isn't it wonderful to see young people starting to take up some of these issues? Um, and, and bravo to the teachers because I know you carry... So, we whatever social problem we have, we say the teachers have got to fix it. Um, uh, And we say that, and then we don't give you the funding to make sure you can. So, um, yes, we should be standing behind our education system. It it is a fine system, but it needs greater resources. In fact, before we came in um, this morning, we were both commenting um, when I did my law degree, my master's degree, and my PhD in law, I did it all at the expense of the taxpayer. Um, A young student doing a, a law degree now Uh, a JD, is going to have a $100,000 debt at the end of it. Now, how can that happen from the 60s when I did my degree to the second decade of the 21st century? We're leaving our young people with such huge debts. Um, Have we moved uh, ideologically? Um, I think the government has moved ideologically, but I think they've, they've failed to understand that the Australian public are no longer with them. There's a huge disconnect between Canberra and the Australian public. And I think I think that will mm, I think that will start to show up with the election. That that the Australian public is waking up really, as understanding, starting to think, how is it that we've moved from that welcoming, basically centrist kind of a country? Uh, where we stood for certain values of equality. We believe in equality and we believe in education. We believe in equal and fair access to proper medical facilities and to adequate housing. How is it that we've regressed in the way that we have? And I think the public is is going to vote accordingly. Um, I'm not a political person, but I really think we have to vote for governments uh, or even coalitions of governments that can start to deliver and bring us back to those values again. Thank you very much from the teachers.
5: Hi, but my name is Marian, and um, you are actually the patron of an organization that I coordinate in uh, Newcastle, the Crown Against the Detention of Refugee Children. <laughs> I just want to make one comment, and I have one question. The comment is about the first questioner who was talking about calling terrorists criminals. The terrorist is always the terrorist in the the eyes of the um, the governments uh, who call them that. My father was part of the resistance in Antwerp um, during the Second World War, and he was a resistant, but the, the Germans called him a terrorist. The Palestinians call themselves resistant but the Israeli call them terrorists. And I think that's really, really important that we keep that in mind, uh, not to amalgamate um, concepts which are very different from each other. My question is um, about what you said about visibility of um, the way people are treated, for example, in the Dondale detention center. Um, I, I think if any Australian could see what is and has been done on Manus and Nauru um, to see it even for just a few hours, but journalists have never ever been able to go there and, and report on what was happening. I think this government would have been kicked out a very long time ago because nobody could actually support the way we torture people, you know, men, women and children. And I would like to know if you think there is a way to um, legally um, force governments to um, allow the, 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 you know, the, the media uh, to have access to the things that need to be reported on in a society, in a democratic society like ours.
2: Well, thank you, and, of course, you're, you're right uh, that um, – thank you. Uh, we need to remember history, of course, to, to understand how the word terrorist can be used and abused. As they say, one man's terrorist another is another's freedom fighter. Um, we have to be careful when politicians use this word because it's very often used with, for, with a political purpose. So, in other words, we, we really just have to think about how words are used because they're powerful. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm not sure now that I agree with you about, about uh, Nauru and Manus. I thought that when a young man immolated himself with petrol on Nauru in front of the United Nations human rights officials and we had photographs of that, that would be a turning point. That would be the iconic picture. And nothing happened, nothing happened. So the main media didn't really pick it up and you get wonderful cartoons by uh, Wilcox, I think it is, um, who again, brilliantly. Uh, I think I've been astonished that that the the images have not turned or had not turned. The, the public view and, it, and I, I do speak so strongly about the importance of images, and I, my generation certainly it was the, it was the um, nine year old girl running down the street in Hanoi uh, from napalm burns uh, or four or five years ago, the body of the little four year old Ellen drowned on a beach. You sometimes only need just that visual image as we did with Don Dale. Why has it not worked for 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 Manus and Nauru or Christmas Island when I when there were children everywhere with with uh, I just remember and I'm sorry to in a way repeat this but it's such a thing in my brain um, uh, uh, just bare soil with with diseased chickens and children babies crawling around in that environment um, I retired from doing some some interviews with uh, with detainees and I went to sit around a Old plastic ta- t- table in the in the canteen, and um, took out my my lime yellow and orange markers and things and paper to write up my reports. And a little girl comes up with her eyes over the table, just looking at these coloured bits of paper and drawing materials. And I gave it to her, and within a few minutes I had a table of about twelve children, all all with these implements. I was tearing up bits of paper, giving them, and saying to them, share. I knew they didn't understand English, but I was saying share because I didn't have enough. And they were delightedly sharing the word share and saying share. <laughs> um, how did it get to that? And, I, and the image is strong in my mind um, of, of that powerless situation of children there with no education for a year. But I do go on. The, my, my, my point is... It's been very hard to shift the debate on this issue, and at the worst of the times when we were doing our children's report in 2014, nearly 80% of the Australian population on the the, um, focus groups and surveys supported government policy at that time. But what I think has happened, and why I'm so optimistic for the future, is I think the Australian public has shifted. And I really see now an opportunity for change. I don't think we'll support this for very much longer. Six to seven years on those islands, in those conditions, now exclusively for men, um, is still a a powerless situation. And we have nearly 30,000 people in Australia um, in a a legal twilight zone where we've refused to accord their status as refugees. So bravo to the Grandmothers for Refugees.
1: (laughs) Wow. And a big bravo for
0: Gillian Triggs. I hope you enjoyed listening to this conversation from the 2019 Newcastle Writers Festival. Save the date for next year's festival, April 3 to 5, and follow us on Facebook for regular updates.